Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd love it if you could turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, and it reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. Well, this time of year always brings certain images and ideas to our minds. We think of peace, we think of joy, we think of the beginning of a new year. And our thoughts and televisions and grocery stores are filled with white snow, elves, presents, jolly songs, and a legalistic fat man in a red suit who watches you while you sleep. But more importantly than all of that, it's the time of the Advent, where Christians of all walks of life reflect on the darkness of the world and the incarnation of Jesus Christ into the midst of that darkness. As the beloved hymn reads, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What is this light that we, the people walking in darkness, have seen? It is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Beginning in Matthew 1.18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now Matthew is an author, and the task of any good author is to make us, the readers, care about the subject at hand. Why should we care about the birth of Jesus Christ? What's so important about a baby being born that Matthew felt the need to write about it? And why has the birth of this particular baby so captured the hearts and minds of billions of people throughout the last 2,000 years. Well, the story of the birth of Jesus can only be understood in the context of a much larger story. And it's the story that the Bible tells from beginning to end, which may be summarized like this. God providing a solution to the fundamental human problem. 
God providing a solution to the fundamental human problem. Now, if you were to ask people on the street, what do you think is the number one problem facing humanity? You would probably hear as many answers as there are people. But Scripture presents only one, and that problem is sin. Well, what is sin? According to one theologian, it is nothing less than cosmic treason against a holy God. It's disobeying the law of God who loves you, who created you. He gave you your life and your breath, eyes to see his glorious creation, ears to marvel at beautiful music and the intricacies of human speech. God is righteous and altogether good, perfect in every way. He's worthy of all of our worship and praise and devotion. But we have rebelled against him. We lie. We murder. We commit adultery. We steal from one another. We covet each other's possessions. We deny God's very existence and go after other gods of other religions or the gods of pleasure, power, and self. Our very human nature has become so corrupted with sin that we are utterly incapable of pleasing him. And therefore, justice must be done. And the penalty is death. God is indeed loving and full of grace, don't misunderstand. But he's also angry at sin. And now you say, that that seems a bit extreme. But understand something. God is holy. He must punish sin, or else he wouldn't be good. And because we've defied an infinitely holy God so too must his justice have an infinite duration. He can't just give a slap on the wrist. Everyone here and everyone in the world will die one day and stand before this God that I have described to you and no one will have an excuse before him. We face eternity in a place called hell, which is the place of punishment for those who have broken the law of a holy and righteous God. That is our fundamental problem as humans. But remember the overarching message of Scripture. God providing a solution to the fundamental human problem. Why is the birth of Jesus Christ so important? Because from the moment that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, he was setting in motion a plan to redeem humanity from their sins, a plan made before time began. This wasn't plan B. God wasn't reacting. This was always the plan. And in Genesis 3.15, we read what God says to the serpent who tempted Eve to disobey God. And he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This mysterious offspring of the woman is understood to be the one who will solve the fundamental problem of human sin, the one who will come and deal the serpent a death blow. And as history progressed, God chose a people for himself, Israel, the Jewish nation. He gave them his law. He gave them kings, prophets, and the system of sacrificing lambs and goats without number to attempt to appease his anger against sin. But no one could perfectly keep the law. No one listened to the prophets. 
Half of the kings were bad, and the animal sacrifices couldn't atone for human sin against an infinitely holy God. Think of the law and the sacrifices as the bandage that a paramedic uses to stop a bullet wound from bleeding. It may help to cover it up for a time, but what the patient needs is a doctor to close the wound. Our sin is like an open wound that the bandage of the law can't close. We need a doctor. And for the people of Israel and indeed the whole world, none showed up. Well, it seems pretty hopeless, right? But that's not the end of the story. Not by a long shot. Why is the birth of Jesus Christ so important? Because the world isn't so different today as it was back then. We still refuse to acknowledge God's authority. We still serve our own desires and try to build our own little kingdoms. We still have a desperate need for grace and forgiveness. So let's take a look once again at Matthew's gospel. And we're going to look at three key things about the birth of Jesus Christ. First, his divine conception. Then we'll look at his divine mission, why he came into the world in the first place. And finally, we'll look at his divine proclamation, his message to the whole world. And beginning again in verse 18, first point in your outline we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read from verses 1 to 17, and you don't have to do that right now, you will see that Matthew begins his gospel with the story of the world that I have just told you, but done through a genealogy. In fact, it is Jesus' genealogy. Now, if you know the Bible, you know the great sins of these men and women, and the great grace and mercy of God, and the intense, centuries-long desire for a Savior to come, a Messiah. Now, Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience and so sought to prove the identity of the Jewish Messiah. And he does so by providing Jesus' lineage, especially since it was prophesied that he would be a descendant of King David, the most famous of the Israelite kings. And so Matthew includes names that we know well. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, King Solomon, on and on and on, name after name, until he reaches some guy named Joseph from a backwater town called Nazareth that nobody ever wanted to visit. And according to the text, Joseph is the husband of a woman named Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now Matthew presents Jesus from the get-go as the one whom God has promised to be the Messiah. In fact, three times already, in verses 1, verse 16, and verse 18, he calls Jesus the Christ, which is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the guy, Matthew says. He's the one we've been waiting so long for. Now, you'll notice that the text is careful not to refer to Joseph as Jesus' father, and why that is is made abundantly clear. Mary was found to be pregnant by divine means. Now, at this point in the narrative, she was only betrothed to Joseph, engaged to be married. But they had not yet come together, meaning they, well, you know what that means. 
This is what's historically been called the virgin birth or the virgin conception. Now we need to understand that the doctrine of the virgin birth is absolutely non-negotiable for the Christian. Every major creed and confession since the early days of the church has agreed with what scripture says that Jesus did not have a natural human conception. Well, how did this come about? This isn't exactly something you hear about every day. Can you imagine the newspapers? They'd go insane. Well, Mary received an angel of God who told her what was about to happen. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35 read, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is the offspring of the woman spoken of in Genesis 3.15. It couldn't be any clearer from what Luke says here and from what our text in Matthew says. Both take great pains to let us, the readers, know that Jesus' conception was miraculous. God mysteriously and supernaturally intervened in nature to cause Mary to conceive. Well, why is this doctrine so non-negotiable for the Christian? Because it testifies eminently to Jesus Christ's divine origin. Now, many people before Jesus was born claimed to be the Messiah or were called the Messiah by other people, countless. In fact, the Roman Caesar himself claimed to be born of the heavens. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus was not just another Joe Schmo off the street with a big mouth and an even bigger ego. He was, in point of fact, the very Son of God. Now, we need to be careful here because there are some religious systems and cults out there that believe that God actually had sex with Mary to produce Jesus. And that couldn't be further from what the text is saying here. God is spirit and not a human being. It's unknown how exactly God worked to produce the unborn Jesus in Mary's womb, and it's not for us to speculate on it. The text simply doesn't tell us. We need to be so careful to read what the text is actually saying and to avoid dangerous error such as this one. And we also can't say that Jesus began to exist at his birth. He was not just another man. Now, Christians have always affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, which states that there is one being of God, and within the one being of God, there exist three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God the Son. And in the virgin birth, he took on 
a human nature, our nature. Though from all eternity, he has always been God. Now turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because I want us to see that I'm not just making this up, that this is actually something in Scripture. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and there we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now the word that John speaks of here is none other than Jesus Christ. So we have two distinct persons. We have the word and we have the Father. And these persons are one God. Well, how can this be? Well, I'll tell you right now. I have no idea. No theologian in history has ever claimed to comprehend how God can be both one and three. It's something of a divine paradox that we can't quite wrap our minds around. Not a contradiction, a paradox. The two are different. The Puritan John Arrowsmith said it this way, that the Trinity is a mystery which my faith embraces as revealed in the word of God, but my reason cannot fathom. And now look down at verse 14, still in John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God the Son made flesh. This is the identity of the baby in Mary's womb. It's an incredible thing that God himself would come to dwell with us. Luke's narrative, from which we read a few minutes ago, tells us how Mary was filled with joy and wonder at the angel's message. How exciting and terrifying it must have been to be carrying the Savior of the world in her womb. And you'd think that her husband Joseph would be jumping for joy right along with her once he found out what had happened, wouldn't you? But that's not what happens, not at first. Turn back to Matthew 1 and go to verse 19 where we read, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Well, this is an unexpected reaction. I don't want to dwell on this point too much, but it's important to understand that adultery is a sin against God. In fact, the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And for a Jewish man, it was unwilling, or uh, excuse me, it was unlawful to marry an adulteress or else bring shame upon himself and his entire family, let alone hers. And Joseph thought Mary had been un unfaithful. Now we know she hadn't been, being a woman of great integrity and favor with God. We know that her pregnancy was indeed miraculous. But Joseph didn't know that. And so somehow he found out that his bride-to-be was pregnant and assumed the worst. And how can we blame him? Would any man in here believe his fiancée if she came to him and said, Hey, I know we haven't slept together yet, but I'm pregnant, and it's miraculous. I don't think so. But here we get an insight into Joseph's character as a just man. He can't in good conscience marry Mary, which is fun to say, 
because in his mind, she's an adulteress. But he also refuses to shame her, as was his right culturally as a Jewish man, because he knows it will cause her to be destitute, probably for the rest of her life. And it's obvious that he cares deeply for Mary. He loves her very much. And instead of letting himself be carried away by emotion, he decides to annul the relationship privately so that Mary can save face. But God's plans are very often different from ours, and they were very different for Joseph. Continuing on in verse 20, next point in your outline. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. So now we see a parallel between Joseph and Mary's experience. Mary received an angel, a heavenly messenger, who gave her the news that God had chosen her to bear the Messiah in her womb. And at some point after that meeting with the angel, Mary conceived miraculously. Now Joseph has found out, assumed the worst, and is preparing to annul their marriage before it's even begun. But as he considered these things, once again, Joseph is not a hasty man. He's thinking through the issue carefully, perhaps planning how he's going to pull this secret divorce off. Or maybe Mary had told him and sworn up and down that she was innocent of any sin against him, that her conception really was from God. Maybe Joseph is filled with wonder and doubt. Could Mary be telling the truth? Well, the text doesn't say exactly, but whatever the case, Joseph decides to sleep on it, and he'll make a move in the morning. And just like Mary received an angelic visitor, so too does Joseph in a dream. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, any doubts about Mary's integrity dissipate as Joseph hears the angelic message. Any plans for a secret divorce are thrown out the window. And in an instant, all of Joseph's questions are answered, and all his anxieties are calmed. And what a joyous message that he has received. His betrothed is pregnant, and the baby is from God. But that's not all the angel has to say. There's more. He continues in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Well, now the child has a name. Jesus. Now, Jesus was a common enough name for a Jewish boy. It was the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Quite an appropriate name for this particular baby. Joshua is the name of the Old Testament leader of Israel who led the Israelites into the Promised Land who defeated their enemies and established them as a people. But the Jesus to be born of Mary would not be a war hero. And though he was indeed a king, he would not be born into a kingly palace to the standing ovation of adoring subjects. 
One poet writes, Man overlooked a baby's birth when love unnoticed came to earth. We're notified immediately when some celebrity or the British royalty or whoever it is is pregnant or has had a baby. But no one would even realize that the Savior had been born. The one who, as the angel says, will save the people from their sins. I remember that humanity's fundamental problem is sin. That God is good and holy, just and righteous, deserving of our worship and praise, not because he's some tyrant, but because he's good. Because he gives us good things. But our very human nature is so tainted with sin so that in thought, word, and deed, we resist everything about the God who made us. We break his law. We refuse to acknowledge his goodness. And even worse than that, we act as though we are God over our own lives. And we say, God, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do what I want to do. How does scripture describe the human condition? But I can assure you it's not pretty. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? King David writes in the 51st Psalm, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or hear the words of Paul in his letter to the Roman church. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And a few verses later in this very same section, Paul goes on to say that there is no fear of God before our eyes. This describes you. It describes me. Now you may be sitting there, maybe sitting there going, not me. No, not me. I'm a good person. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed rape. I've barely even stolen. My rap sheet is clean, for the most part. Good for you. As if that were the standard of goodness. Sure, you've never murdered anyone, but Jesus comes on the scene and says that even hating someone makes you liable to the hell of fire. You may have never committed adultery, but Jesus said that even looking with lust makes you guilty of adultery in your heart. God's standard extends even to the thoughts and intentions of our heart and mind. We can't measure up to that. Now this isn't an attempt to shame anyone or to point fingers at anyone specifically, but it's to show the nature of sin. Even if we don't commit the really bad sins, our hearts are still evil. If this were the whole story, we should be crying out, woe is me! There's no hope for us. If God were to act on his justice right now, there would not be a single human being, living or dead, who would be able to claim innocence before God. So what do we need? Well, we need something. We need someone to help us out of this mess. We need some way to escape. Well, Scripture says that we need a mediator. 
a savior. In the book of Job, we read in chapter 9, verses 30 to 35, If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he, God, is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Would that there were an arbiter or a mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Do you see what Job is saying here? He's essentially saying, I have no argument against the wrath of God. I cannot even approach God without fear, because his wrath against me is so terrible, and my sin is so great. I need someone who can go between me and God, who can take away the wrath of God, because by myself I am hopeless to do so. This is our great need. We need a mediator. Someone who can go between us and God and take away the sin that causes us to dissent with one another. We need a mediator who is a perfect man. Because only a perfect man can represent us. An angel cannot represent us before God, even though it's perfect. Because an angel does not share our nature. It's like if you went to trial for a crime you committed and you used a dog as your lawyer. And for this same reason, God himself cannot be our mediator. He is wholly different from us. No, this Savior, this mediator, must share our human nature. For only a human can represent another human. But this mediator must also be able to save us from our sins and the wrath of God against us. That's our fundamental problem in the first place. We need our relationship with God to be repaired. And the only way that that can happen is if our sins are taken away and God's wrath removed from us. God can't just erase sin. He must punish it. Otherwise, he would not be just. He can't even be in the presence of sin. And if his wrath is not spent on us, it must be spent on someone or something else. And that was the whole point of the sacrificial system. Instead of God killing the people justly for their sin, he commanded an animal be killed. But animal sacrifices can never take away human sin entirely. But can any human do that? No, not even a perfect human. No human being can handle the crushing weight of the sins of many, nor can he handle the infinite and holy wrath of God. Do I have any volunteers for that? So this Savior, this mediator, must also be fully God. For only God can handle the sins of many and the wrath against them. Well, who else fits this description? Fully God and fully man than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This Jesus, who is the offspring of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, checks all the boxes that qualify him to be our mediator and savior. Remember John 1.14? And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Jesus, God himself, was born of a virgin and became human like us in every way, but without sin. He's perfectly God, perfectly man. He's able to represent us before God the Father because he has our nature. He's able to bear the wrath of God the Father and take our sin away because he's God the Son. Jesus is the doctor who can close the open, festering wound of our sin. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew 1, verse 22, which reads, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus' birth fulfilled ancient prophecy, which shows that this was God's plan all along. This wasn't plan B. This was to show God's grace, his unmerited favor towards us. We don't deserve a savior. But God sent one anyway. And he told his people centuries before Jesus ever came that he was going to send Emmanuel, God with us, who would be capable of taking our sin away. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with man, excuse me, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Paul writes of this event in his letter to the Galatian church where he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And again in his letter to the Philippian church, though he was in the form of God, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you get right down to it, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, came to the earth for one purpose, and that was to die. He was sent by God the Father. He was born of a virgin. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. He always loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor. He never told a lie, never stole, never even had lust arise in his heart. He kept the law when we could not. He lived a sinless life. And he did all of that so that he could stand before God the Father in our place. And the people hated him because he told them that they needed to repent, which means to turn away from sin and to turn back to God. And he told those who thought they were good that they weren't, that they too needed a savior. And they killed him by nailing him to a cross of wood 
And there on that cross, Jesus took the wrath of God for sins on himself. The punishment that you and I rightly deserve, Jesus took so that we wouldn't have to. God spent his wrath against sinners on Jesus. And not only did Jesus take away our sins, but he gave us his own righteousness. So now God can look at you if you've trusted in Jesus and not see your sins, but the righteousness of his son. If you are trusting in Jesus today, God has no more wrath for you. But if you aren't, you are under God's wrath even now, and you are still in your sins. Friends, I can't emphasize how important this is. I know it's weighty, and I know it might not be comfortable to hear these things, but many of you sitting here today have not had your sins forgiven. Many of you sitting here right now are not right with God. It's guaranteed that all of us are going to die one day. You might, might, well, you might not make it to the end of the day. You might not make it to the end of the sermon. But hear me, you will stand before God one day. Whether you believe it or not. And he will have to give you justice. But what you're hearing is good news. You've heard that the God who must judge you has also provided you your Savior. Your sins can be forgiven and the wrath of God taken away. And the best part is, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to fill out an application. You don't have to sign a card or raise a hand or pray a prayer. You don't need to fill out a survey. I'm not going to have you walk this aisle. You need only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your trust in Him and Him alone, not in your own perceived goodness or the value of your works. Those things can never make you right with God. Only Jesus can. Let's finish Matthew's story. In chapter 1, verses 24 to 25, we read, final point in your outline. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph wasted no time in obeying God's command. He took Mary to be his wife, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to her son. And the baby, as per God's command, was given the name Jesus. And Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem and placed in an animal's food trough. Quite a place for a king to lie. And his birth did not go entirely unnoticed. He did have some visitors that very night. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 8 to 20, we read, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. This is getting to be a pattern. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Even the angels understood the magnitude of what was happening this night. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Well, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You can almost feel the joy and excitement of these shepherds as they practically sprint all the way to Bethlehem to see the Christ. And when they have seen him, what's their response? They go away praising God. And Mary, Jesus' mother, treasures these things in her heart. No doubt Joseph was moved in his heart as well, wondering at the little baby before him whom the shepherds and angels called Savior. And sometime later, Jesus is also visited by three magi from the east, astronomers and learned men, to whom God showed a star which would lead them to the one that they called the King of the Jews. And Matthew 2.10 reads, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and what? Worshipped him. This is the one we've been waiting for all these long years. This is the one who can redeem us and free us from our sins. These shepherds and these wise men didn't understand how this little baby before them would be the savior of the world. They didn't know about the cross. But when they looked on him, they believed. His birth was nothing less than a divine proclamation. The Messiah has come into the world. And oh, how we need him. This whole world needs him. You need him. I need him. And that's good news because this message isn't just for me. It's not just for the people here. It's for the whole world. He came to make sinners like you and me righteous. He came to make spiritually dead people alive in him. He came to reconcile us to God when we were hopeless to do so ourselves. The message of Jesus Christ coming into the world is not one of sorrow, but of joy. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, 
peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So what will you do with him? You have looked upon Jesus Christ as he is presented to you in God's very word. This message demands a response from you. You can't ignore it. In fact, to ignore it is a response. The angels praised him. His parents treasured him. The shepherds glorified him. The magi worshipped him. The application of this passage to your life is very simple. Believe in him. Will you respond like they did? Let's pray. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 